Hello, and welcome to The Sacred and Superstitious, where I'll be taking a weekly look at rituals, folklore, and supernatural creatures from around the world. I'm your host, Daphne Fama. Thanks for joining me today. Last week, I discussed barong, a form of witchcraft used in the Philippines, where a sorcerer summons insects, which might be malevolent spirits in bug form, to infest the body of a target, causing illnesses and even death. Today, I'm continuing the discussion of witchcraft in the Philippines. The terminology I'll use is primarily from the Visayan region, which is where my family is from. Because the Philippines has so many different languages and regions, terminology and even practices can vary. That's just another reason why Philippine witchcraft is so unique and why I find it so fascinating. I'd also like to apologize in advance for my pronunciation. Last week, I mentioned usik, a form of sorcery which sends small bugs such as gnats, termites, even ants, into the hair follicles and skin pores of a victim. But usik daignut doesn't use insects. Instead, the sorcerer uses lifeless matter, such as sand, glass, and pins, which the sorcerer introduces slowly into the victim's body. It's an agonizing form of torture that is incredibly difficult to cure, even by a skilled faith healer. But if it's not cured, the glass or sand can sink even deeper into the body, causing lacerations on the target's organs. Like Barong, it can't be cured by a medical doctor. But, fortunately, it is an exceedingly rare form of witchcraft, though very little is known about it. This form of sorcery is particularly common in Cebu City, so perhaps avoid making enemies of sorcerers there. It's not certain how the sorcerer introduces the glass or sand into the victim's body. Some believe the curse is inflicted through words, which are usually spoken, but some sorcerers are believed to only have to think the curse to inflict it. One such case involved a dressmaker in Cebu, who constantly suffered scaling or burning on her scalp, which was believed to be caused by a witch. The dressmaker years before was once approached by another woman with short hair. The woman with short hair asked the dressmaker if she'd allow her to cut the dressmaker's hair short. The dressmaker refused, and within a few hours, she developed a severe headache that lasted two months. She sought medical treatment, and when that didn't work, she went to a faith healer. The faith healer told her that there was a girl in love with her who wanted the dressmaker to cut her hair short. After treatment, the dressmaker's headache disappeared, but her hair began to behave strangely, matting in such a way that she was unable to comb it. Her husband cut her hair, and the skin on the dressmaker's scalp broke open. This was considered a very mild form of usik. The dressmaker refused to visit the short-haired girl who was in love with her in case the sorcerer added more to the curse. But there are some ways to cure usik. A faith healer might use a method called dapo. The faith healer will brew a concoction of coconut oil with 21 slices of the giant taro plant. A black cloth is then dipped into the mixture and then passed or rubbed onto the affected body part, while an invocation is said over the victim. When the black cloth is opened, the objects used in usik, such as sand grains or needles, will be found inside of it. Another form of witchcraft is hilo. Hilo, unlike usik, is far more common. Perhaps it's the most common form of witchcraft. If you speak Filipino, you might think the word hilo just means to be dizzy or confused, but in Cebuano, it also means to poison. Hilo is a broad umbrella term for this form of witchcraft, and there are a myriad of ways that sorcerers might poison someone. One way is for the sorcerer to erect an altar of stones and branches in a secret place or a place of power. Usually this place will be in a bamboo forest or in a cave. The sorcerer will then arrange machete blades at the altar, with the blades facing upwards. The sorcerer will then call for the spirits through prayers and offerings. And if his offerings are accepted, the spirits will send a snake to the altar. The snake might be a Philippine cobra 
or it might be a snake with a red tail, which I believe may be the waggler's pit viper. The summoned snake will slither across the blades, leaving its blood and poison on them. This combination of fluids will be collected by the sorcerer and mixed with other poisons or trees and plants that cause irritation. The sorcerer may then use this potent poison on his target. But not all Hilo is done through intentional witchcraft. There is a saying in the Besaias which translates to, It's better to have sorcerers or witches for neighbors than poisoners. There are some people, called Hiloan, which are moved through uncontrollable urges to poison others. Hiloan is a combination of the word for Hilo, poison, and Anan for people. Hiloan are particularly common in the town of Dapitan. Most people are afraid of accusing alleged poisoners, but healers within the town have directly named suspected poisoners once the poisoner has died. Researchers interviewed people in the city who had been poisoned, or who had relatives who had been poisoned. These interviewees claimed that the poison was administered in one of two ways. The first method involved the recitation of a magical spell. If the intended target is close to the poisoner, the poisoner then touches the target, seemingly accidentally. If the target isn't in touching range, the poisoner may stare at the victim. In both cases, the poisoner recites the spell to enhance the effectiveness of the touch or stare. This power is said to exclusively belong to those who are evil-hearted. There are some people called parabuyag who are born with black tongues, and they can poison someone by just making a comment without need to recite a spell, though this is an exceedingly rare trait. The second way to administer the poison is to place the poison in a place where the victim is most likely to interact with it, such as their food or drink. The hiloan will then recite the spell, or the poison can be administered indirectly, like burying it in the ground over which the victim usually passes. Once the victim steps over the buried poison, the poison rises up into the victim's body, causing bloody discharge. While there are two main methods in which to poison people, there are those who believe that some poisoners are not always aware of the harm that they're causing, that instead these innocent-minded poisoners, through their thoughts or words, are harming unsuspecting victims. These poisoners are the most dangerous and must spend their life moderating themselves once they realize they possess this ability. My mother knew such a person near her hometown who wasn't a poisoner, but rather someone who could unintentionally curse with their thoughts. This woman was very beautiful and had a family and was accepted in her community, but this woman worked very hard not to think negative thoughts or gossip about her neighbors. This is the reason, I believe, why she wasn't treated like an outsider and had a relatively normal life. Though, it's also possible all the curses she caused were merely coincidences that had nothing to do with her. When it comes to inheriting the ability to poison others, seven of the eleven people interviewed in Dapitan City give an absolute no answer when asked if someone could learn how to poison others through training. Instead, the poisoner must have an evil urge combined with magical knowledge provided by a biological ancestor. There's very little training involved. Most believe the power is inherited or transferred from an elder kinsperson once the elder is on his deathbed. Those who accept the transmission of the ability are believed to be free from sickness for the rest of their lives. If the transmission is refused, then the elder person may be unable to die until the transmission is eventually accepted. One person interviewed claimed that a poisoner who was confined to bed for three to four months without sufficient water could still talk and only died when someone accepted his possession of Hilo. In this case, it does not seem that there needs to be a biological link. In a similar situation, a person who was believed to be a monster called an Aswang in Cebu could not die until he transmitted his curse. But he had no relatives to accept the transmission. So, a cat was thrown into the room with him. This was apparently acceptable, as the Aswang then died, 
The people then immediately killed the cat, who was believed to now be in a swamp. Once a person has inherited the ability to poison, the poisoner will then combine his intangible ability with poisonous material to make his ability stronger. It's also believed that before a poisoner can use his abilities on others, it must first be tested on someone living in the poisoner's house, such as their parents, spouse, siblings, or even children. Beyond their supernatural abilities, poisoners who have also accepted transmission intrinsically know about poisonous herbs and snakes. He also knows the days on which poisoning rituals are best performed, such as the first Monday after Holy Week, and the places where these rituals should be performed, such as caves or forests where spirits usually frequent. If you believe you're a victim of supernatural poisoning, there are certain signs and symptoms to look out for. If your poisoner is supernatural, your hair, lips, and whites of your eyes may be discolored. You may find it difficult to breathe, you may have yellow-green vomit, and you may have trouble speaking and also be fatigued. Fortunately, supernatural poisoning can be countered by a healer before it even begins. Albularios are faith healers who can diagnose whether or not someone is afflicted with something supernatural by taking their pulse. These healers take a vow, which they profess and renew every Good Friday. The albulario can create a concoction which is then distilled into a small bottle. This small bottle is worn on one's person and has the supernatural power to emit a signal through heating and boiling over whenever a poisoner is near. If a strong albulario touches a poisoner who is known to curse through touch, they can cause the poisoner's curse to backfire and hurt the poisoner instead. But if you've already been poisoned, the healer can make a mixture of root chips, powdered roots, and coconut oil, which can then be rubbed onto the affected body part, or it can be taken internally. But even if someone is a known poisoner, there is rarely anything done about it. Instead, the suspected person is treated cautiously and even fearfully. Despite there being suspected poisoners in Dapitan City, no poisoner has ever been violently attacked. The last segment of today's show will focus on the much stranger form of witchcraft called Laga. Laga in Supahano means boiling water or water with something in it. And that literally describes the method in which this curse is done. In order to perform Laga, the sorcerer seeks some representation of the victim. These representations can be hair, fingernails, urine, feces, footprints, fingerprint, saliva, a garment, or something else. The victim can be known or unknown, and an unknown victim might be an anonymous thief who happened to leave some evidence behind. These representations of the victim shouldn't be touched by the sorcerer, so implements are used to gather them, like a spoon, pin, or some other instrument. The sorcerer will wrap the fingernails, urine, saliva, or whatever ingredient in the leaves of the mangunkong, balanati, or kanomai trees. The ritual must be done on Friday at noon or 8 in the evening. The sorcerer takes the representation of his intended target, along with the ingredients to perform the spell, to an enchanted place where he calls the spirit who backs his sorcery. He calls for the spirit, saying, I am here now, asking for your help to kill the victim. This spirit is usually an encantado, has a relationship with the sorcerer, and the sorcerer makes annual sacrifices to it. After calling for the aid of spirits, or the encantado that backs his sorcery, the sorcerer will create a makeshift tripod from the branches of the mentioned trees. A pot will be placed atop the tripod containing the rat specimen from the victim, together with a special kind of poison called idolut, which was concocted at three in the afternoon on Good Friday, which is the time Christ died. He should use seven shellfuls of this poison. The poison itself is an extremely difficult concoction to make with a long ingredient list. It took me a long time to compile this recipe, but I think this is as close as we can get. To brew idolut, the sorcerer will need three pieces of the following plant, 
the David's Heart Tree, the Dios Pyros Montiflora, and the Buttonwood, three pieces of ginger, three pieces of turmeric, three pieces of white turmeric, plants with properties similar to those of ginger, chopped up pieces of sea anemone and starfish, the poisonous part of the pufferfish, three pieces of a cross from the cemetery, three pieces of a wooden coffin, three pieces of a skull of an unbaptized person, three hairs of a dead person, three teeth of the waggler's pit viper, three pieces of the hive of wasps, and water taken from the snake's sea cucumber, an animal which swells with high tide. If someone really goes through the trouble of acquiring all these ingredients, that person must really hate you. But once the sorcerer acquires all of these ingredients, ingredients and the representation of the victim are placed in the pot. The leaves from the plants used in the poison are used to cover the pot and will be fastened using the climbing fern vine, which is wound seven times around the pot. The fuel for the fire to boil the ingredients come from the branches of the sea daisy, the poison fish tree, and the Chinese chase tree. The sorcerer will light the branches from the leaves of the trees and leave the concoction to boil. It must be ensured that all branches are consumed by the fire. If the spell is a success, the victim will have a high fever, swelling, and perhaps some other symptoms, such as vomiting, discharge of blood, or a heart attack. A sorcerer interviewed in Sibulan in the 1960s described one instance in which he practiced laga against an unknown thief. We'll call the sorcerer A. During the night of the annual festival, A and his house guests had gone to bed late. While they were asleep, a robber broke in and took a Petromax kerosene lamp, a revolver, and about 600 pesos, or 1,400 US dollars when adjusted for inflation. This money belonged to A's gas. The robber escaped undetected. A took a piece of the purse from which the money had been stolen with the fingerprints of the thief on it and used it to perform laga. Two days later, A felt compelled to take a bus to a town in northern Cebu to visit a cousin. After arriving, A found through a discussion with his cousin that a man suspected of being a thief was seriously ill in a house nearby. A went to visit the ill man and saw the lamp. He didn't see the revolver and he felt the money was gone. A described the symptoms of the sick man as a swollen stomach and he was turning black all over. Soon afterward, the man died, and both A and his robbed guest assumed that this was the robber who suffered the retribution of A's sorcery. A believes it was God's will that he visit his cousin and in doing so discover who had robbed him. Counter-sorcery on behalf of a victim of Laga can be done by shaving pieces of the shrub called the Persian croton. These shavings are rubbed all over the patient's body and then arranged in two piles, each of which is wrapped in a leaf of a banana plant. One of these packages is buried in soil under a stove, and branches of the plants used in creating the poison afflicting the victim are burned within the stove. If the counter-sorcery works, the symptoms of the illness will return to the one who cursed the patient. And that concludes this week's topic on witchcraft. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next week when I'll be discussing two new forms of witchcraft, one involving skulls and the other involving exploding stomachs. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you next week. This has been The Sacred and Superstitious, and I'm your host, Daphne Fama.